0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Lutheran Library, and this is our last book in the Worship Matters series. Uh, Today we're going to be covering a three-year banquet by Gail Ramshaw. And this book is on the Revised Common Lectionary, which is what I use. Um, But before we get into this this last book in our series here, I do want to mention again, for any of those who haven't caught it, please go to the new uh, website, uh, www.transcendenttruth.com dot WordPress.com. go to the Facebook page, go to the Instagram page, see all the updates there. We have a merch store up there, which we're doing through Bonfire. So um, yeah, anyways, without further ado, this is the last book that we're covering in the Fortress Press, that's ELCA series on the Divine Service, uh, and this is on the RCL, the Revised Common Lectionary. Now, before we begin, maybe the non Lutherans are wondering, or perhaps some low church Lutherans, even in my own synod, are wondering, Connor, what is a lectionary? Okay, so a lectionary, I say a lectionary rather than the lectionary, and you'll see why in a second, but a lectionary can be two things, and Ramshaw notes this. It can either be, firstly, the selection of readings that we set out from the scriptures to read every given Sunday. The older ones are often set for a one-year timeline and follow the church seasons. The newer ones are often three years and follow the church seasons. Almost always, it's an Old Testament reading, a psalm to be sung or chanted, Uh, though some lower churches uh, just read the psalm, a New Testament epistle and a gospel. Now, on some certain holidays, that's changed around. And uh, I know, for example, there's uh, some songs in Exodus, um, some songs in Isaiah, and those are sometimes placed where the psalm usually is for a special holiday. But for the most part, it's an Old Testament reading, a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel. Now, perhaps you say, Connor, what is the necessity of this? There's no necessity for this, okay, but it has great use in unifying the church together on what is to be read and what is to be preached, as well as to pile together our resources to protect us from preachers who would preach one book for 20 plus years, you know who I'm talking about, or other pastors who would avoid certain texts, and even from pastors who preach purposely on things of obscurity all the time. I could mention names, but I'm sure you have some coming to your mind anyway. And remember, of course, this um, lectionary is simply what the church sets out to be read and preached. If you are an evangelical pastor and you think you don't use a lectionary, but lay out a year ahead of time what you'll be preaching and what you'll be reading, well, I'm sorry, but you use a lectionary. It's just not a common one. So the second meaning of this word is a physical book printed out of those chosen readings. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about the first one, although you can go and buy a copy of a book. It's essentially a Bible, but it's just, and it's set out, so instead of being like, Gen- you'd have the book of Genesis, then Exodus, then um, you know, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you would have um, Advent 1, Advent 2, um, or you have daily lectionaries as well. So you get the idea, right? But today we're just talking about the first concept. That's the, the actual abstract texts. That we chose, not a published hard copy book or anything. So let's begin. Yes? So Gail Ramshaw begins our book here by telling us something that I don't think is actually quite true. She says that all Christians agree that scripture is to be read in the divine service. And here, I suppose it depends on what she means by Christian, but my big problem here Is not with this point, but the one that follows, where she then says, And we also agree that God speaks to us through the Scriptures. Now, certainly, that can depend on what we mean by God speaking to us, but here I want to press upon her liberal synod and her liberal tradition, where so many people don't view the Scriptures as God's words spoken to us, but rather as being man's understanding of God reflected in their own words and in their context. So I'm not saying that this is what she means by God speaking to us, but it does need to be acknowledged that we can't say all who call themselves Christians are of one mind on this. In fact, the Quakers at one time, I'm not sure if they still do, but at one time they did call themselves Christians, and their main denominational distinctive was not having the word of God read in the services. So the way that I would then take this discussion myself, personally, is then to go back to the synagogue practice of the Jews, who read on a lectionary basis through the Old Testament on a three-year cycle. But Ramshaw goes back even further. She goes straight to the adoption of the formation of the Old Testament canon among the Jews, and she says this itself is a lectionary. that this itself is the choosing of what books to read, and in fact, enlisting them in order, which uh, was at their time a different ordering than ours, right? The Jewish canon as opposed to the Christian Old Testament canon. Uh, Same books, different ordering, right? That this itself um, is them, that, you know, they're not just saying what books to read, but they're saying when to read them. And, And this, I suppose, fits well into my own point following organically right behind that in reading the old testament which itself is a lectionary and then says what books to read and what order to read them in 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 a kind of it's kind of like a meta lectionary right this was then concentrated down into a much narrower sense when in the synagogue synagogal practice which came to be in the time of the exile in babylon they set a lectionary up for saturday sabbath worship and reading in a cycle a three-year cycle particularly and so we may say here that we therefore have, a, in a sense, a big lectionary, the canon, and a small lectionary, the Sunday lectionary. And one thing, though, that I agree with Ramshaw here on, however, uh, which may be hard to catch if you aren't aware of the ongoing discussion on these matters behind the scenes, is she's speaking of the formation of the Old Testament canon as liturgical rather than organic. Um, and, and therefore it's dated to be very late, with, in her opinion, for example, and I disagree with her here, in her opinion, the Genesis 1 and 2 accounts, she says, were chosen, but the, the creation account in the Book of Jubilees was not chosen for Sabbath readings, and therefore uh, it isn't in the canon. And in a sense, I'd agree with her if she applied this to the New Testament canon, but on the Old Testament, it's a little bit difficult for me to accept, because it, it, then that begs so many questions. How late does Ramshaw believe these books were written? How late does she think they came into usage of God's people and their worship? How late do the people of God in Ramshaw's mind come to realize this as God's word to them? These are very serious questions with very serious implications. And in tying together the concepts of canon and lectionary, what Ramshaw is doing comes to the logical end of of. Of then making a strange, uh, um, 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 uh, a second canon within the canon, right? So, a canon within a canon in the lectionary. And that's, that's really neither here nor there. And in fact, the point is granted, isn't it? If we accept the perspective that the canon is at least in any part decided by the people of God, not to the exclusion of God's sovereignty over that or his giving of that, um, that would then be granted and one of ramshaw's points here is actually it's really quite interesting uh, that is that in her perspective at least the dating of the closing of the new testament christian canon happened either at the same time or subsequent to the common tradition of the lectionary as found in what the church fathers were commonly preaching at at least in high feasts and if you're again if you're not really picking up what she's saying there she's understanding canonicity and lectionary like this big and small lectionary, as I was mentioning, as coinciding together. Understanding the formation of canon as liturgical rather than organic. So I would say uh, the truth is more, at least for the Old Testament, organic. So God gives this book to people. People realize it's from God. And um, that's several centuries before they started synagogue worship um, in Babylon. That's even before the temple right? So that's a long time. That's And so the organic has to do with this kind of progress of them being given the word, them realizing it's the word of God, it working on their lives. They're building their Israelite community and the word of God is walking alongside them, first and in, in happening historically, then in oral tradition, then being written down. Um, I mean, this, we, <laughs> we don't have time to discuss all that, frankly. I mean, it, 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 maybe we'll do something on Lutheran Library about this, maybe on Blood and Bone, I'm not sure, but <clears throat> What she is saying here is that she's viewing the formation of Canon as liturgical, therefore very late Therefore also that it, it she's placing the human responsibility and authorship of the Canon and um, in, in a sense the uh, um, Place of the Bible is in the church and I have no idea or I sorry, I have no problem with that Um except for the fact that you would then have so many centuries uh, between the actual happening of the events in the Old Testament. But of course, I'm sure Ramshaw doesn't agree with me on the historicity of many of those uh, Old Testament books anyway. And that's a lot of where this is stemming from. There's uh, big differences here between me and Ramshaw, me and the other ELCA authors that will be reading on this, uh, have been reading in this series, and, and probably will read in future books. So then moving on, Red, she starts talking specifically about the revised common lectionary and the reasons to use it. So uh, she comes to tackling the question first of why we should use a lectionary and she absolutely nails these key issues in my opinion. So the lectionary firstly ensures that the church is reading a substantial portion of scripture rather than churches reading one, um, you know, one verse or two that the pastor is preaching on Um, with the rest of the liturgy being basically just contemporary worship music or what have you. So the lectionary ensures not only that we are in a significant portion of Scripture every Sunday, but that the Scripture we read is of a significant scope. It's not just um, reading a lot of Scripture from this one chapter of, of whatever book, but we're reading the Old Testament, we're reading a psalm, we're reading a New Testament epistle and a gospel. So the scope is broad, and we're reading a significant portion of it. And not just that these texts are from these, but that they cover the majority of these of these books and these sections of the Bible. And so, some complaints you'll get, though, you know, some complaints that the lectionary is picking and choosing what to read and and what not to read is dishonoring and denigrating to the rest of Scripture, especially that those portions which are not chosen to be read. But, um, that's not really, you know, true in, in any sense, and... Another one of their problems is that they're not preaching the full counsel of God. Well, if you're preaching a genealogy, let's say, or if you're preaching and reading the temple building instructions, what are you not reading or preaching? And this is the concern of the lectionary. Not just to preach the whole counsel of God, but to preach it in its brightest and most formative sections in the text. And as Lutherans, we should have no problem with this. Unlike the Reform, we've never attempted to claim that we have a level canon. That is, we have never attempted to claim that every book and every chapter and every verse is equally important. And the lectionary serves to promise this dynamic canon as well. And we see that as a good thing, right? And that's primarily, you, you see this in the basics of the lectionary. We read one Old Testament, one Psalm, one New Testament, and one Gospel. What does that tell you? For one... It tells you, if you look at a Bible, it's, I don't know what the actual ratio is, but it looks kind of like 30-70 um, New Testament to Old Testament, maybe even 80-20, I don't know, something like that. Um, and we're doing half of the services New Testament. Then what else does it tell you? In the Old Testament, which is huge, we're reading the bulk of it very, very, very sol- slowly, very sparsely in comparison to what we're reading in the New Testament. And we're reading the Psalms every single week. So it, we don't believe it's a level canon. Otherwise, we would be reading um, you know, three Old Testament readings and one New Testament reading. But we're not. And so the lectionary is keeping this in mind. The lectionary itself is a confession, um, or a polemic in a sense, and, and a confession against the idea of a level canon. And that's a, lo- a lot of the reason why the Reformed have always hated the lectionary and uh, the evangelicals along with them. But within reading um, much scripture and with the diversity and the full breadth of the scripture that the lectionary offers, that also gives the pastor and thereby the congregation an excellent order in what is preached, as well as sufficient freedom within that order. So, of course, allowing for some exceptions when the preacher or the congregation or the society needs something specific preached on that lectionary. And, And in those times, they... Uh, can and do deviate from, you know, one of the readings so that they can preach on something else. But you don't need to get rid of the whole lectionary to do that. Just edit one of the readings, right? For the sake of preaching on something else uh, for one or more Sundays. But as a general rule, if the lectionary is preached regularly um, without being edited, assuming one is using one of the standard three-year lectionaries, they, with, you know, big... um, you know, feasts being the exception, always have an Old Testament, New Testament psalm and gospel that they can preach on each Sunday, or they can preach a mix of them together, even upon all of them, as I often do. And this allows for there not to be uh, a need to be any repeat sermon content for, I did the math, but I don't know if I did it correctly, but I think, no, you would not have to repeat a sermon or any vague, broad sermon content for 15 years. So there's no solid argument here against the lectionary for the sake of freedom for the pastor on what to preach. There's lots to preach in the three-year Revised Common Lectionary. But I think the greatest reason to retain the lectionary is, as Ramshaw notes, not for the sake of our own particular congregation, but rather is for the sake of the greater unity of the church. The church here in Canada, as well as the church in Germany, as well as the church in Kenya, as well as the church in Brazil. And to the best of our ability, the church now, the church in 1200 AD, the church in 500 AD, so for us, to all, to the best of our ability, preach the same thing, that's a blessing that is not to be thrown away for the sake of boredom, pastoral freedom, or otherwise. And for this reason, Ramshaw spins this without explicitly saying it as a canon within the canon. And in that way, she's correct. And some further reading for you guys, right, which is a great piece on the lectionary, in my opinion, as canon within the canon, is in the book the Studies in Lutheran Hermeneutics, which is edited by John Ruman. And that book is on a great debate between the LCA and the ALC, which later ended up forming the ELCA, uh, and the LCMS on Bibliology. But anyways, uh, so there's a really good chapter there, uh on the theology of the lectionary and lectionary as theology and lectionary as canon within the canon. So then in chapter 2, Ramshaw goes and she decides to speak directly and particularly about the Revised Common, which just so happens to be the one that I use personally. Though many in my own synod and my church before I got here and the broader centrist Lutheran community, that's the NALC, the ALC, the LCMC, right? Um, and also um, the LCMS itself. All those churches are preaching and reading LCMS three-year, with few exceptions in Calc where we're using the uh, Revised Common, right? Um, but so, And, and the LCMS three-year is based loosely on the uh, Common lectionary, and we'll get into the history of that in just a little bit, but there's it's different in some areas, as is, Ramshaw was saying, um the lectionary used by the Lutheran Church in Japan. And that's also, that that was interesting to me because I always keep up with uh, Sarah Henlicky Wilson's sermons on YouTube and she's a pastor in the uh, Lutheran Church in Japan. And I'm, I was always wondering, because she's been going on this series for, uh, I think was, she's in 1st or 2nd Samuel or something like that for so long. And I was like, that's not in the lectionary. What are you doing? But yeah, I guess that answers my question. And anyway, so the the history of the three-year lectionary, specifically of the Revised Common, is a messy one. And it it comes together organically, similarly to the organic acceptation of the canon itself. The story of the Revised Common begins in the 1960s when the Roman Catholic Church rightly decided that the historic one-year lectionary that the Church had been using since the medieval age was a bit too sparse. And they wanted a bigger lectionary to, over the course of three years, expose their congregations to much more of the scriptures. And Protestants came to admire this too um, and use it. Um, But in each church, they ended up making edits and they ended up making changes to it and essentially all of them printing their own. The end of which resulted in there being not one lectionary, but many three-year lectionaries. And of course, that defeats the whole ecumenical point, the whole ecumenical appeal to the three-year lectionary, the Catholic appeal, low-C Catholic, of course. And it's in this era of the common, before the revised, uh, of this many three-year lectionaries that, of course, the LCMS three-year came to be, and, of course, that the LBW lectionary was formed. The LBW, of course, is what most centrist Lutheran churches are still using, that or the Reclaim hymnal, which is essentially a rebranded, um, edited slightly version of the LBW. And um, so that's not really preaching or doesn't actually contain the Revised Common, but a specific edition of the three-year lectionary that uh, specifically pertains to the LBW Lutheran Book of Worship. And so at this point, the Church has said, okay, we need to get back to uh, ecumenical Catholic uh, intentions here. We need to fix this. We need to take the consensus of all these different three-year lectionaries and put it together in a way that will be okay with both Protestants and Catholics. And this led to the common lectionary, right? Published in 1983. However, it, was, it still wasn't perfect. And so, uh, heading, um, <clears throat> hearing the voices of those using it week in, week out, uh, it was revised without much time going past just in 1992, giving us the revised common lectionary that we now know and love. Right. However, I I will note (laughs) that even with those changes, you can't please everyone. Right. And so as you may have noticed, if you are a Lutheran, uh, many Lutherans, not the majority, but there are still many Lutherans, Lutheran pastors, Lutheran churches, carrying on the tradition of our Lutheran divines and our Lutheran forefathers who still don't like James being in the lectionary. So, just like them, as Luther and the Lutheran divines removed the James readings from the historic medieval one year lectionary, so now Lutherans are still doing that with a three year revised common or three year LCMS. They're still not reading them, or they're replacing them. And so, here you'll still find. Uh, that in the great ecumenical effort of the lectionary committee, it's still not possible to please everyone. And in good ecumenical fashion, they uh, know that. I mean, that's really the intention of ecumenics. It's not to just please everybody, but it always has a little bit of give and a little bit of take. And so that's that's kind of what it's demanding here, right? Um, and so the result of this is inevitably that Lutherans have taken a much more reformed, much more friendly perspective on James as as since that time. And this has been going on for the course of many years since they've gotten here to North America, especially. Um, but even still, some pastors still remove it and edit it, and they remove that set of readings whenever it comes by. I think I don't know if it's only in Year B, but. Anyways, they remove it. And then another interesting thing along those same lines um, that this has done, this Revised Common Lectionary, is that in the Revised Common Lectionary, there's two alternative readings or two tracks for the Old Testament, usually. Um, and occasionally, one of these uh, tracks, or even two of them, in place of the psalm or in place of an epistle, I've seen both, is a reading from the Deuterocanon, the Apocrypha. And this has also had an impact upon Protestant churches using the Revised Common Lectionary, in many of them becoming more friendly with the Deuterocanon, reading it in their services again as Lutherans once, once did, and even preaching it as Lutherans once did. And this has shaped and formed some changes in mainline and Lutheran bibliology. So in a true sense, we see that the lectionary is theology and lectionary is canon. And this is not the result of theology or canon, but the formation of one's theology and canon and practice. And in a real sense, we can see the role of the church here. And we can't get into all of this right now about how ecumenics work and how... how uh, the Church Catholic helps the Church Catholic and we are a body and need to hear everyone's voice at the table, blah, blah, blah. That needs to be said, but not here. But perhaps I could point you towards Carl Broughton's book, Mother Church. That has a good chapter on this. Or perhaps Robert McQueen Grant's short history of the interpretation of the Bible. That also has a good chapter on this. And and those both tackle this concept um, in excellent, brilliant ways, with sufficient clarity. And, uh... <clears throat> And then in covering the supremacy of the three instead of the one-year uh, lectionary for the church, Ramshaw notes that while this may seem like a new thing, pushing um, you know the quite um, so, so often called historic one-year lectionary aside in a plea to improve it, Um, you know, that's not actually what happened, Um, but that, you know, actually back in the original lectionary, that of the Jewish synagogue worship was a three-year lectionary. So this, in reality, is the true historic lectionary, the three-year Old Testament-only lectionary. The benefits to this lectionary, the three-year revised common, can be viewed as numerous and small, or few but large. So, for example, Ramshaw mentions some things that I don't think matter at all. So let me just, for example, um, she mentions uh, it's important to dedicate each year to um, a, synoptic, a synoptic gospel. And along each third, uh, John is usually reserved for the big holidays, right? But um, I, I just completely disagree with her. Oh, hold on. I'm getting, I, I'm getting a call. Sorry. One second. Sorry about that. Uh, where was I? Yes, Ramshaw and uh, Synoptic Gospels. That's right. So, yeah, so her, her point is essentially, you know, before this time, uh, theologians saw all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not as four Gospels, but one, and often wrote Gospel harmonies uh, to make them into one composite Gospel text. Whereas in her opinion, it's of great importance to stress their individuality and preach them separately. And she says there's a Mark in Jesus, a Matthian Jesus, a Lucan Jesus, a Johannine Jesus, and a Composite Jesus. Well, you know, Gail... I believe in the composite Jesus. (laughs) That's all I can say. So I personally don't think that any of this is of great importance, not to the preacher, certainly not to the laity, maybe only to biblical theologians, if we were being frank and honest with ourselves. And in fact, when I'm preaching, I often mention the differences, but not to portray or emphasize the difference and discord between the accounts, but rather to fill in uh, to the laity's mind what happened here in reality. That is perhaps not included in this year's gospel reading. And if I'm brutally honest, I find that this is often just frustrating to me. At least for me it is. When a gospel reading comes by, but the account is just so, in my opinion, subpar. No offense, in my opinion. But we're only doing it for the sake of doing it. And so on those Sundays, I just fill in what's missing. And in that way, if I were to make any edits to the Revised Common Lectionary, What the first one I would do is I would take the gospel readings from the historic one year and I would put that for every single year in the three year because, you know, well, that's why, right? So anyways, one big simple reason why this three year is so much better than all the small things that me and Ramshaw disagree on is this. We we agree on this wholeheartedly is simply the amount of scripture it contains over and against the one year lectionary. That's everything. Right. That's the that was the whole purpose. That was the whole goal. And in that way, in reading the synoptics, that's a good that's a good way to do it. People may have said, I've read, I've read the gospel, but they've not really read they've not really read Matthew. They've not really read Mark or Luke or John, but they've read the composite gospel. And I think that's good. I think the god composite gospel is the reality, but I don't have any issue with reading from Mark and then me preaching on the composite um. Narrative of that text, um, and for example, on Logos, if you have the, I know the Logos NRSV has uh, basically gospel harmony built into it, so that's no problem for me to do. Anyways, anyways, getting us, getting us way off track here. And then we get into a discussion of the liturgical year. Now, of course, as all we who use the Revised Common or the LCMS three year know, the lectionary is inseparably bound up together with the church calendar and ecclesiastical holidays. And that's a great and a beautiful thing. And it's also interesting to note that those who claim that they don't use lectionaries celebrate the same evangelical feast days that we do, at the very least, Christmas and Easter. And likely on Christmas and Easter, they're preaching the same text that we lectionary preachers are preaching. Indeed, the concept of the church year and the lectionary go hand in hand the ordered cycle, the rhythm, the movement of the church along with the story of Christ through the year and its seasons. In many ways, though it's often not thought about, the Christian church year is two things. It's firstly a Christological fulfillment and continuation of the Jewish calendar and feast cycle as a powerful witness to the world in its second uh, 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 purpose. And, um, you know, that we... In that second one, we, we're not moving from family event to family event. Or we're not like farmers moving with the life and the death of the veg- vegetation around us or the harvest cycles. But we're moving with the life, death, and the resurrection of Christ our Lord. So we begin the church year in Advent, the season of suffering and hopeful expectation in the midst of all we're de- dealing with. And then the birth of the God-man, the Christ child, the birth of true life into this world of death. And then we move into his life for us. And we walk with him to the cross where he is crucified by us unto death. So that in his flesh our sins might be put into the grave. That he might be risen to grant us new life. And that then we walk into Pentecost and the outflowing of the Spirit upon Christ's church. As we walk away from that empty tomb to go out into the world and proclaim this good news. And then following Pentecost, we have ordinary time where we grow in the service of God and of neighbor, grow in depth and grow in maturity, grow in grace and in faith. And as Ferdy says, get used to our justification. And if, Uh, You know, of course, there are several smaller feasts within that year, such as the Annunciation of Mary, the Transfiguration, Ascension Day, uh, Trinity Sunday, Reformation Day, Christ the King, so on. And uh, it's also important to note that if you pick up a copy of the LCMS 3 year, the actual Sundays will be flooded out by the vast amount of Saints Days and such. But the key points of this church year are those really big ones, Advent, Christmas, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, Ordinary Time. That's the big movement here. And then we move into what I think is one of the most important things for us mainline and centrist Lutheran churches. The importance and the validity and usefulness of the Old Testament readings. Of course, everyone sees the importance of the Psalms. Well, actually, I <laughs> now that I think about it, I say that in confidence, but that probably isn't actually true. See, one of the big problems Lutherans have always had well, not always, uh, I suppose it was actually pretty good in the original Reformation era, but for quite a long time, only being remedied now and mainly only in the mainline via pro-Judaic tendencies as an overreaction to anti-Semitism, which is no fix at all, really. In so many of our churches, the Old Testament is read in the lectionary, but rarely ever preached. And the story is the same in our church's Bible studies. In fact, you'll often hear things like, Oh, that's Old Testament as a phrase of utter dismissal. Or, oh, I don't read the Old Testament as if uh, because we don't believe the canon is of level authority that these things are either not important or do not preach Christ. Indeed, they do preach Christ. Every single biblical text preaches Christ and Christ alone. The Old Testament is Christian and amusing way to remedy this problem that I've seen other pastors do, though I think it's a bit too extreme, is that they will, if they find this to be a problem in their church, preach an entire year just on the Old Testament readings. And of course there, you know, there is um, life there there is the gospel there in those Old Testament sermons and there's nothing wrong with this though I do find it's constrictive in the opposite way So if you know what I mean uh, kind of like if we are bothered that our churches will not have us preach the Old Testament Why would we only preach the Old Testament then we'd not be allowing ourselves Because of their opinions false as they are to only preach the to uh, sorry to not preach the New Testament And other pastors have solved this in better, more healthy ways by every week alternating between Old Testament and New Testament. Others in flipping a coin and others still in preaching one in the morning and one in the evening if they're so lucky to have an evening service. And here Ramshaw is not just saying, you know, that we must read the Old Testament, but she's going further. Something even more important she's saying, she's saying why we should read and preach the Old Testament. And of course, Ramshaw being one of the folks who is, um, in my opinion, trying to read the Old Testament as something other than a Christian uh, document is an, an, an author who does not see eye to eye with me on the matter. And she spins the Old Testament as important for Christians as insight into the Jewishness of Christ and complementary to the gospel. But I'll solve this quickly for you. Of course, we need to read the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. As the New Testament is essentially a fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? The Gospels and a commentary on that fulfillment and the promises of the Old Testament. Think the epistles. It's not complementary to the gospel. It's the promise of the gospel itself. The Jews and the Christians are not two peoples of God, but all who believe this promise is one and the same people by faith in the Messiah. And that's a Jewish thing to say, and it's a Christian thing to say. And a true true Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but inwardly. And the only one who comes to the Father comes through the Son, and unless you know that Christ is the I Am, you will die in your sins, as he said. And that's not a New Testament message. It's a biblical message. And while there is a progressive nature to biblical revelation. It's one coherent movement from promise to fulfillment to preaching in the pulpit. And when we lose sight of either of these things, the progressive nature of it, or the coherency of it, or the ability to preach it and teach it like the epistles do for us, we lose the force of biblical proclamation of the messianic promise and salvation itself. And I've experienced this so often when I preach or I teach people who have never bothered to read the Old Testament. And they say, what's this word mean? What's this? What's the law? What's Paul talking about? How much more confused will they be then when they read the Gospels, especially Matthew? And how much do they really understand? It's no wonder that these same folks, they grimace and they squirm when wrath and judgment of God is preached. Because they have never encountered the law. They have never encountered the temple sacrifices. They have never encountered the full counsel of God. So as an aside, but an important one, all you lectionary preachers, especially you Lutheran lectionary preachers, get out of the gospel. Stop preaching it every Sunday. Get into the epistles. Get into the most importantly uh, um, uh, for us Lutherans who have neglected it. Get into the Old Testament. Preach it. Otherwise, your people will never encounter it in the way that they need to. Preach the Psalms. Your people in suffering and strife and lament need you to. They need to encounter the language needed for genuine prayer, the lyric of song and praise. Don't take lightly what God has given us. Don't ask if it's necessary. He gave it to you because it's necessary, right? Preach it all preach it all. And I have a very similar thing to say about the epistles. As anyone who knows me will know, these, not the Gospels, and not the Old Testament, are my bread and butter. While I rarely preach on one text alone in the lectionary, the epistle is generally where I anchor myself, and I use the Old Testament or the Gospel narrative to swing, or both, to swing back and forth from theological treatise and proclamation into the realm of story to lighten the load for the listener. But one thing I find absurd is that, again, the vast majority of Lutheran preachers I know gospel every week. Every week. Stop. The epistles will arm your congregation with the theological ammunition found nowhere else. The epistles, being often semi-continuous in the Revised Common Lectionary and the LCMS 3 year, give you a great chance to do a solid sermon series. And they can be used beautifully as a bridge from narrative to theology to application or as a refreshing break from a sermon series. And, you know, here comes in the beautiful reality of this book's title. The Revised Common Lectionary is not just a gospel entree um, with, you know, an epistle as a side and uh, the Old Testament as a drink and a psalm for dessert. It's a full-out banquet. It's a feast. All right, folks, we'll, uh, we'll close up here. This has been a fun series. Let all things come to an end, yes? And uh, I believe the next book we're uh, covering will be on the unity and diversity from the ELCA perspective. And then after that, we're jumping into a four book series from Lutheranism 101 put out by Concordia. All right, so see you next time. And um, this week also, expect two episodes closing up the Lord's Prayer for a small catechism series on confessing Concord, and then two episodes a Reformation special, and beginning our new Lutheran Reformation series on blood and bone, as well as three blog articles going up on transcendent truth. So again, follow the website, follow the Instagram, follow the Facebook, and of course we have a YouTube channel as well. So uh, I bid you adieu. Uh, Go away in God's grace. His word has been fulfilled. Go towards the divine service. Go and hear the Old Testament Go and hear the psalm, go and hear the epistle, go and hear the gospel, and then give thanks, showing love to one another uh, for the glory of God and for the love of humanity. All right, God bless you all. Bye-bye.